Well, today we're continuing our summer series uh, where we're just studying through a selection of the parables of Jesus. And I want to be really upfront with you today. Uh, today is a heavier parable. And I only chose uh, to, to teach on this parable, actually, just this, this past Tuesday. I just really felt like uh, the Lord led me specifically to this passage and specifically to this parable because of the times that we are in. And so I'm hopeful that this message is going to really speak to all of us today uh, in a profound way. So that being said, uh, if you have a Bible with you today, I hope you do, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 25. As you're turning there, uh, let me catch you up with what's going on here at this point of Jesus' ministry uh, and his teaching. Uh, We find ourselves in the middle of a a private conversation between Jesus uh, and his disciples. Jesus is sitting uh, on the Mount of Olives, which is in Jerusalem, overlooking the temple. And from Matthew chapter uh, 24 and 25, Jesus teaches about his own second coming. And maybe you've never heard that before, or maybe you've just, uh, you just need a reminder today, but Jesus is coming back. Uh, Jesus is coming again uh, to this earth. You see, in the beginning of chapter 24, we see that Jesus' followers have asked him uh, when he is going to return and the signs that will uh, point to the end. And so uh, with that question, uh, over the next two chapters here in Matthew, we see Jesus' response in a sermon that is now commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go through the entire discourse um, or really all of the context that leads up to our parable today. Uh, But if I were to sum up chapter 24, I would simply say that Jesus tells his disciples that in the end, um, it will be a time of many troubles that there's going to be uh, many signs that the end is near, uh, but that ultimately the exact moment, the exact hour of his return, we will actually never know. We don't know. Um, but then when you, when you turn over to chapter 25, uh, you go into this parable. We have, we have this knowledge that Jesus is coming back, we have this knowledge that his, his return, uh, we don't know, it's going to be unexpected. And then Jesus goes right into this story to help further explain uh, what his return is going to be like. So listen to what Jesus says, starting in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. This is what God's word says. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Well, right from the beginning, we see uh, that the parable takes us to the moment of the second coming of Jesus. It says right at the beginning uh, of this chapter again, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. In other words, uh, this is the moment or the time when Jesus has come, when he is ruling and reigning over all things. And so we are set in this scene uh, to start this parable. 
And then from there, I want to call your attention to four main themes or, or characters that will help us understand the purpose of this parable, the parable of the ten virgins. So if you're taking notes with me today, uh, we're going to start here. Number one, we see the wedding. The wedding. Now, uh, it's important to understand uh, that a first century Jewish wedding looked very different than your typical uh, American or, or Korean wedding. Right? For Jewish people, a, a wedding was the greatest event in a village uh, or the town. It was the greatest single social celebration that those people knew anything about. And everybody got involved in the weddings. Uh, certainly uh, family, uh, but also friends, uh, extended family, uh, the whole town, everybody was there. It was a time of, of happiness and joy. Uh, it was a time of festivity. It was a time uh, of celebration. But the main difference uh, that is essential for us to know is that in a Jewish marriage, uh, there were three elements or stages to a marriage. The first was engagement. And the engagement in this culture uh, was an official contract between the two fathers who were giving their daughter and their son to each other. And so engagements weren't really uh, made by the couple like they are today, and especially in Western society, but they were actually made between the two fathers. And then a little after that took place, the second phase would occur, and that was called the betrothal. Now, uh, the betrothal was the, actually the official ceremony. The couple would come together before family and friends, and they would make their vows, uh, covenant, uh, covenants, and uh, binding promises to each other. So there was an actual ceremony at this time, and its conclusion was that the, the couple was officially married. Uh, however, it wasn't uh, very celebratory like, like our ceremonies today, um, even though it still was very much so uh, official, uh, particularly in that there was no breaking up this couple uh, without a divorce once they were officially betrothed. Well, then after this ceremony, after those vows and covenants and promises were shared, again, these two individuals were in a covenant relationship with one another. But here's what's interesting. Uh, at this point, the couple actually still would not live together. And therefore, they were also not allowed to sleep together. That even though they had entered into a contractual covenant together, there was still no physical intimacy permitted. And what was typical after or right after the betrothal period or that ceremony is that for several months or at times even up to a year, the man or the groom would actually go into a season of preparing. Uh, he would get things uh, ready to, to take the bride, take his bride to be his own. And at this time, uh, during when he went away, uh, he had the responsibility uh, to provide a place for her, which meant that uh, he was either going to get his own place 
Um, or if he didn't have as much resources or finances, he would actually build an addition uh, onto his father's house. But not only that, uh, he was also obligated to purchase some land or something similar as a way to prove to the fathers and to his extended family that he could care for his wife. And so he had, again, about a year to do that, to prepare his home for her, to prepare his life for her. And then at the end of that time, whenever he was ready, he would go back to her. Uh, He would go and get her, if you will. And she would become his own, and they would live together. And at that moment of of him coming back, that's phase three. That's the final stage when again, the bridegroom, the groom, is all prepared and he arrives back to the home of his bride to take her as his own. And this, this moment was actually known as the wedding festivity or the wedding feast. So if you could sort of put yourself in that uh, position for a moment and you can just imagine, right? Can't you? Like the anticipation Uh, that would be in the heart of the bride and the bridegroom uh, going through that process and then at last getting to the moment of finally being able to be together where the marriage could be consummated. There would be such great excitement and anticipation. And then the announcement would happen throughout the town, right? The bridegroom is on his way. He is, he's almost here. He's coming back for his bride, right? The, the bride is prepared. Uh, the bridesmaids are, are ready and waiting. And now they're certain of his arrival. He's coming soon. And when he actually shows up, the party begins, right? At this time, first century Jewish marriages, it was a party. Torches would light the night sky. There'd be singing, Tons of conversation, dancing, food, wine, right? Just pure joy and celebration throughout the village as the two begin their journey to the place that the groom had prepared. Uh, And so understand, this is where we are in the story, right? In this parable, uh, this is where we're at. The groom is on his way. The wedding feast is about to begin. And so that's the scene, the wedding. Then the second thing we we see is the bridesmaids. So again, if you're taking notes, uh, number two, the bridesmaids. Notice again in verse one, it says this, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. You know, actually the the Greek word here uh, for lamp is much closer to our English word for torch. Uh, It's actually the same word that we see used in John chapter 18, verse 3, when it speaks of the torches that the Roman soldiers carried when they came to arrest Jesus at the end of his earthly ministry. And so when you think about uh, the lamp here, you can actually imagine this, this long wooden pole. And at the top of that wooden pole, there'd be some kind of wire mesh uh, attached to it that's filled with cloth. And then what they would do is that they would take that cloth and soak it in oil, and then they could light that, making it a flaming torch. But maybe more important uh, for our purposes in this sermon is to also know 
that along with carrying the torch, you would also commonly carry around a little flask of oil. Uh, you would put that maybe around your hip uh, to, to, to be able to, to keep putting oil on that cloth so that, it that that torch would stay lit for as long as it was necessary through the night. But you might ask, um, I know I did when I first read this text, why do the bridesmaids even have torches? Uh, this is supposed to be a wedding, right? What, have you ever seen a bridesmaid carrying a torch? Probably not. But it, it might sound strange, uh, but, but think of it as sort of uh, their invitation, if you will. Uh, just like perhaps at a wedding today, bridesmaids typically carry uh, a flower bouquet or something like that uh, as a symbol that they belong to the wedding party. Uh, this was that for, for them, that the torch was a sign or a symbol that they belong to the wedding party. And so again, we have these 10 virgins, and they take their torches, uh, no doubt, to the house of the bride to wait to meet the bridegroom. Uh, by the way, uh, I, I can't move on without addressing the word uh, virgin here. Uh, Jesus is, is not actually here trying to make a moral point, right? These are bridesmaids. And, and bridesmaids, as custom, uh, were almost always young, unmarried girls, and therefore uh, they were virgins, right? I'll leave it there uh, for the sake of this particular sermon. But what is really important is who these girls represent. And it's very obvious from what our Lord says here who they are and who they represent. See, these, these bridesmaids, uh, they represent professed Christians. Uh, they are those who claim to belong to Christ. They are symbolic, uh, a symbolic representation of everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. See, as followers of Jesus, uh, we know that we are also waiting for the second coming of Jesus, that you and I are waiting for his return. Uh, like the bride, uh, we prepare, we're supposed to prepare and wait for him, right? We long for Jesus. We long for our groom's return and in the moment when he takes us home. And so that's who these bridesmaids represent. But although the 10 of them are there, um, although they have all shown an outward desire and interest in the groom's return, although they, they all show outward marks of, of readiness because all of them are seemingly dressed and all of them have brought their torches, what we see in this parable is that they're actually not at all alike. We see that starting in verse 2. It's pretty simple here. Look what it says. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. And why is this the case? Why does Jesus say that? Why does Jesus claim that some are wise and some were fools? Well, we see that actually in the next two verses, starting in verse 3. Look at it. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And so we see the difference here is really uh, preparedness. 
Um, but, but more than that, this is really, uh, spiritually, it's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. The wise, they carried the flask with the oil to, to pour onto the torch to give it light. But the fools had no oil at all. They made no proper preparation. And the point Jesus is getting at here is that for the foolish bridesmaids, there was an external or, or an outward readiness for the feast. Uh, they looked the part, but in actuality, there was no genuine preparedness. The foolish bridesmaids were committed intellectually. They were committed socially, but there was no true life in them. There was no true faith. They brought no oil. Now, uh, what is the oil here? Uh, and again, this is actually pretty simple. The oil represents true salvation. It's salvation from the heart. It's real. It's pure. It's true. You know, in, in the scriptures, uh, that's what oil represents. It, it, it represents purity and, and holiness, uh, it's actually a picture of the Holy Spirit and, and the work that the Spirit is doing that sets us apart as followers of Christ. And so uh, those with the oil here, they have true faith in Jesus and they have been transformed. They were prepared. And so uh, you might say right here, we, we know the purpose of this parable, that the, that the purpose of the parable is to warn us not to be caught in such unpreparedness when the Lord comes. You know, I think it's, it's interesting as well uh, that the Lord here, or Jesus doesn't say that just one of them uh, forgot to bring oil. Uh, he actually says here that five of them don't bring oil and, the, and although I don't think that we're necessarily supposed to read too much into that, I do think it's fair of me to say that Jesus does see a large number of people uh, who are like this. And that isn't to say, again, uh, that, that half of everybody in the church uh, is unredeemed. But I do think it communicates to us that being unprepared is more common than we might think. And, and so here's the, the truth today. Here's the reality today. And I think it's an actually a really somber one. That, that through this parable, Jesus is saying that our world is filled with unprepared people. They might look the part. They might say all the right things. They might know all the right details. But actually, their heart is unprepared. In other words, they look and act like followers of Jesus, but they really aren't. And I realize this is not a very popular message, by the way. Uh, it might even be offensive to some. But the truth is that Jesus warns us over and over and over again about this reality. This is what it's going to look like when he returns. This is what's going to happen. Some are going to be prepared some are not going to be prepared. Well, with that, uh, what happens? Look at verse 5. Uh, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So we see here the, the groom doesn't come when they expect him. 
he is actually delayed. And, and, and that idea parallels what we know about Jesus and his return, right? Because we know that his return is also going to take time, and it's also going to come unexpectedly. But because the groom is delayed, we see what happens. Everybody falls asleep. And the message here isn't don't fall asleep, right? That's actually not the point here. Because notice, again, they all fall asleep, both the wise and the foolish. And so I can say with confidence today, uh, there is nothing wrong with sleep. Sleep is a wonderful thing, right? Some of you just said amen, right? The issue isn't falling asleep. The issue is falling asleep, notice, unprepared. The issue isn't falling asleep. The issue is falling asleep unprepared. It would be like, you can imagine with me, picture this, all being in the same classroom. And the teacher tells us that sometime in the coming week, uh, there's going to be a test, a pop quiz or something. Uh, but they don't, again, say when. And so, so what happens? What would happen next? Uh, well, a lot of you are teachers, and so you know what would happen. Uh, and I'm sure all of us at some time in our lives were students, or some of you currently are, so you know what you would specifically do. If the teacher said that today, uh, there's going to be a test next week, some of us would go home and study, and others of us would not, right? Some of us would prepare for the test in that pop quiz. Others of us, maybe we'd take a risk and, and worry about studying later. But either way, each of us will probably fall asleep tonight. See, the fact that, that right now uh, we're not all gathered together on a hillside somewhere, right, staring up at the sky, uh, it doesn't mean that we're not prepared for Jesus to come. The importance is having a heart of readiness even as we go about our everyday lives. And that means that you and I can actually go about our everyday lives and still be prepared for our teacher's test this week. Right? The, the point here is, if you're not prepared, get prepared. Don't fall asleep unprepared because that would be foolish, right? I think we can all understand that. And so again, we have the wedding scene. There's, there's 10 bridesmaids here. Five of them are foolish. Five of them are wise. And then we have the bridegroom, or maybe more commonly, we call him the groom. And that's number three, the bridegroom. Picking up our, our text in verse six, it says this, but at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Now, uh, midnight is a strange time to start a wedding, right? Really strange time. Uh, but it does make Jesus' point clear that, again, he could come at any time. Interestingly enough, though, uh, and this is just a side note, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 29, it tells us, that the deliverance of Israel from Egypt began at what time? You'll never guess. Midnight. It happened at midnight. And because of that, many Jewish teachers used to say and teach that the Messiah would come to deliver his people at midnight as well. And so who knows, 
right? Who knows what time or what hour? Could be midnight. But here's what we know in this story. That's what time the groom shows up. He shows up. It's really late. And, and we see there in the text that at his return, there was a cry. And the, and the cry was obviously to announce his approach. Uh, and I suppose that there will be a cry when Jesus finally comes to, to set up his, uh, his kingdom in that last and glorious moment as well. A cry out from heaven. And the cry here is this. Again, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And this is the moment that we talked about before. This is, this is phase three of the wedding. This is the glorious moment when the wedding festival is, is going to begin. When the groom comes to take his bride home. And this serves as our illustration of Jesus' second coming. This is, this is the illustration of the very moment of it. And so what happens? Verse 7 says, Then all those virgins rose, they got up, and trimmed their lamps. So again, we see here, all the torches are ready. The cloth and the mesh is prepared to be lit. And the ones with oil now pour the oil over the top. Uh, They light the torch and it flames in the night sky. And you can, again, you can picture this moment with me. Think of this. Um, Here's what we also are going to see happen. That those who had no oil, now they know it. They've come to this realization. They're being hit right now with the reality that they're not ready. And unfortunately, there's no excuse. They knew that the wedding festival was going to start soon. They knew that the groom was on his way. They were actually already gathered at the bride's house, but they still wasted their opportunity. They were not prepared. And now their shortcoming is revealed in verse 8. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. So again, they have no oil. They can't light the torch, but the groom is there. And we see here they're desperate. And so they beg to have some oil. And so the the wise bridesmaids answer them. It's verse 9. But the wise answered saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And please understand here, uh, this is not a, a lack of generosity or a lack of graciousness here. Right? The wise bridesmaids are, are not being rude. Uh, the point here is, you've got to get your own oil. Uh, the point here is, another person cannot give you faith. Another person cannot give you salvation. That's the big picture here. Again, it's not that the wise here are selfish. The problem here is that the wise are unable. They cannot give them what they now desire and need. In other words, the saved cannot save the lost. And so it didn't didn't matter who they asked. Uh, Give us your oil is a request that no human being can answer. Because every person, again, 
must have their own salvation. Every person must make their own life right before God. You don't obtain salvation by association or proximity. You know, I, I hear this a lot, especially living in Korea. Um, well, my, my parents are, are Christians, which means that I was, I was born a Christian, right? But the reality is, uh, no, you were not, right? You didn't inherit salvation. You actually inherited sin, uh, you were born a sinner, and, and therefore you are in need of personal salvation. You cannot share anyone's oil. And so, so what do we do? How do we obtain oil, or how do we obtain salvation? Well, unlike the oil in the story, uh, salvation is not something that you can go to a dealer for. Salvation is not something that you can buy with your money. But at the same time, uh, we do have to pay a price for salvation, right? And that price is really your whole self. The price for salvation is giving up your life. That if you want Jesus, the price is all of you. You give up your, your purposes for his purposes. You turn to him and acknowledge him as the only one who saves. But no one can do that for you. It's for you to decide. Again, you must obtain your own oil. But here's the sad part of this parable, of this story. For them, for these, these bridesmaids, uh, it's too late. It's midnight. The shop is closed and the wedding has started. And the only way into the wedding is with a lit torch, but they have no oil. And in that last moment of, of sheer desperation, we come to verse 10. It says this, And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Uh, what a thought. And it's nothing short of terrifying, really, to realize that Jesus has come, but the door has closed, and you have been shut out. I'm not sure there is a more fearful teaching in all of the scriptures. But Jesus, again, gives us this reality over and over and over again through his earthly ministry that there are those, even within our church gatherings, who are not prepared for Jesus to return. The marriage feast starts, and Jesus says that at that moment, the door was shut. Well, uh, we shouldn't be surprised at the response. Uh, notice verse 11 in the parable, what happens next after the door has been closed. Afterward, the other virgins came also, the foolish ones, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Right? And, and of course, what do we see here? They want in. They want inside. Uh, they have no oil, but they want to join the party. Right? They're knocking and, and pleading at the door. Please, Lord, let us in. 
right? We're with the wedding party. We're dressed for the occasion. We're friends with the bride. But he answered, verse 12, truly I say to you, I do not know you. This is incomprehensible. There's no second chance. You see, the only sure way to be ready on the unexpected day is to be ready every day. Uh, Every day. And I know this is sort of a dim and downer of a sermon up to this point. But here is the great news for you and I today. Here is the hope that the door is open right now. It will be shut on the day of Jesus' return. And on that day, some will not be ready. But it's open right now. So what is our proper response? Well, Jesus tells us. It ends with this verse, this whole story. It ends in verse 13. Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. He literally says here, keep on the alert. Be ready. Because you don't know the exact moment of my arrival. But even though we don't know the time, we need to prepare ourselves for it. And so practically, like what does that look like? Well, uh, to keep with the theme of this parable, it means to, to right now, Fill your lamp with oil. Fill it with oil. And that involves, first and foremost, again, denying yourself, picking up your cross, and deciding to follow Jesus. It means coming to a place where we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then it means actually living out that belief, living out that faith. You know, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And so I just want to encourage you today to do just that, to examine your life and ask yourself, uh, does, does my life in any way reflect Jesus? Right? And let me ask you, when you, when you read about his life and his ways, do you see yourself at all? In your life, do you desire a greater holiness? Church family, uh, we don't know how many days we have left on this earth. You know, I've, I've been reminded of that again so deeply. Uh, just recently, uh, even just this last week, uh, attending a few very painful funerals. Um, we don't know when, when our last day might be. And we don't know the day or the hour of our Lord's second coming. And so my prayer, my hope, is that none of us who call this, this gathering our home, our local church, that, that none of us would be found um, out trying to make a purchase when he calls us home or when Jesus returns that we would all choose to fill our lamps now, that we would be ready now. The message of the parable of the ten virgins is really simple. Jesus is coming soon. We don't know when, 
Uh, but I feel like this, this particular season, um, everything that's going on in the world right now, this is a season to remember, to be reminded that Jesus is coming soon. So let me encourage you, respond to the gospel. Examine your life. Genuinely live for him. And together, uh, as his bride, let's keep waiting and watching for our groom, Jesus' glorious return with great joy and anticipation. Let's pray together.